Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out newdealleaders.org to see what I'm talking about. As much as we love our state and local leaders, I thought it was time to get an update from Washington. And to get a sense of where things are headed, there's no better source than New Hampshire Congresswoman Annie Custer. She's the chair of the New Democrat Coalition in driving important policies for families and innovation. We talked about the freedom agenda, her conversation with Joe Biden yesterday, threats to democracy, the election results from New Hampshire, and her terrifying experiences during the January 6th insurrection. She's smart, straightforward, and dare I say, cautiously optimistic. Enjoy. Congresswoman Annie Custer, welcome back to An Honorable Profession. Great to be with you, Ryan. Thank you. You're one of in the pantheon of Honorable Profession guests as a repeat visitor, and we're so excited to talk to you today because you've been hard at work at moving an agenda through Congress which is no small task. And so I want to jump right in, which we're recording this on February 1st. The House just passed the Families Tax Reform Act, which restores the child tax credit. Can you talk about that rare act of bipartisanship and the role of that your leadership has played in it? Sure. Well, I'm the chair of the New Dem Coalition, and we had a unanimous vote from New Dems last night for the tax bill. It's a bipartisan, pragmatic approach. It's not every single thing that we hope to get. When we're in the majority next year, we'll do even more for the child tax credit. But people will remember during the pandemic, the child tax credit was used to lift uh, 40% of children out of poverty. It was really an extraordinarily successful innovative initiative to help families with young children who were struggling to make ends meet. And this is funding that will help them pay for childcare so they can go to work or pay for food or pay for rent, but make sure that we're raising our children, our future workers, in a safe and secure environment. So we're excited about that. In addition, we got housing the low-income housing tax credits are crucial for improving the housing stock and increasing the number of new housing units that are built. I can certainly say for my district, housing is one of the biggest challenges. And then we also got an R&D tax credit for innovation, small businesses, new businesses working on great new ideas that are going to make life better and easier for Americans. We'll also get a tax credit for that research and innovation. I think this has been extraordinarily powerful. I think the previous iteration of the child tax credit listed something like 3 million kids in the United States out of poverty. So this moves the needle in a, in a significant way. Just 
with crossed fingers, do you think this portends any more bipartisan agreements in this legislative session? Well, I certainly hope so. You know, we've been dealing with a great deal of dysfunction. This is now the 14th month of the very narrow Republican majority. And frankly, this is the first substantive policy legislation that's passed in the House. So we take it as an omen for future success. The Senate is working right now on a very important piece of legislation in regard to border security and immigration. And we care a lot about that. New Dems care about the workforce and the economy. And we want to make sure, again, back to my district, I've got 2% unemployment. So we need workers and we need a legal path for new Americans, for foreign-born workers to come here and help to keep our economy strong. And then, of course, we've got the issue of aid to Ukraine to fight for democracy, not just here at home, but around the world. And that's critically important. And then trying to resolve the conflict in Israel and Gaza and get humanitarian aid to Gazans who are quite literally starving right now. So extremely important bipartisan package coming out of the Senate. And we look forward to both the tax package and the supplemental appropriation getting to the president's desk for his signature. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the New Dems Coalition and what the goals are, what the membership is, and how you hope to drive an agenda, not only, I guess, in this session, but hopefully, as you say, as the Democrats reclaim the majority in the next session. Right. Well, thank you for the question. We're the best kept secret in Washington, D.C. We are the New Democrat Coalition. We're almost 100 members of the Democratic Caucus. We are described in many ways. We're pragmatic. We tend to want to get the job done. I call us the can-do caucus. Some people think of us as center-left or moderate, but really what ties us together is that we care a great deal about the economy. We care about jobs and giving people opportunity, training, higher education, apprenticeships. We want to make sure that everybody has that chance at the American dream, and that's really what we're all about. And you partnered with the New Deal to launch the Freedom Agenda. And can you talk, I think, a little bit about the substance, but also why you chose to center it around freedom? Right. So I love the framing of freedom, and particularly given that the former president running for president again literally wants to be a dictator. So I think it's important that we call out freedom and that we call out the rule of law, our constitution and how we as New Democrats, as New Deal leaders in our communities, approach the role of government. We believe in our institutions, starting from the ground up, starting from voters. We just had our first in the nation presidential primary last week in New Hampshire, where voters turned out because they know that their voice makes a difference. And we can't let the cynicism of this new era erase that level of engagement. I think it's critically important. So we talk about a freedom agenda, partly because our freedoms are threatened. First and foremost, right at the top, making those personal lifestyle decisions of strong communities, love the one you're with, marry who you love, don't let the government make a decision that 
will impact your personal decision-making. Obviously, reproductive rights right at the top of this agenda going forward. In the normal course, it wasn't something that New Dems was very engaged in, but it's at the core of your decisions as a family, as an economic unit in society, it's the most expensive decision you're ever going to make when and whether to have a child. And we want to make sure that you are in control, not the government making that decision. We talked a little bit about excellent education and training and family supports, things like the child tax credit that are going to make a difference for families to be able to participate in the economy and really thrive. So that's the sort of creating opportunity freedom, freedom of strengthening our communities and having healthy, safe, secure communities, free from violence, gun safety legislation, free from pollution. Let's face it, we're talking about saving the planet and clean water, clean air, get the lead out of our pipes and living Without that constant dreaded fear about extreme weather events, we're very, very committed to clean energy. It's a win-win-win proposition of creating jobs, building stronger communities, and saving the planet. So we're excited about, about that second pillar of strong, safe communities. And then protecting our democracy. You know, I can certainly say for myself, I was one of the very last members of Congress that was evacuated from the gallery on January 6, 2021. I thought that I was in a safe place to be in the United States Capitol, but it turns out I was dead wrong. You know, the insurrectionists stormed the Capitol, breached the Capitol, and put not only our lives at risk, but put our democracy at risk. It turns out in my case, we now have video footage from the third floor hallway that it was only 30 seconds from when I was evacuated, ducked into an elevator, to when those insurrectionists are in that hallway, literally hunting for members of Congress, trying to delay or obstruct the certification of the presidency of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And it goes beyond that. We have Republicans that are challenging voting rights or that are insisting on gerrymandered districts. So we want to make sure that we maintain trust in government. Our New Deal leaders are critically important at the local level, secretaries of state, county officials that are involved in our elections, and then all the way up to protecting our reputation as a global leader for democracy around the world. I mean, the last time you were on this podcast, it was about a month after the insurrection. And I'm wondering, with the passage of time and now an election that occurred in your state last week, how do you feel about the state of American democracy, both in its administration, but maybe more importantly, in terms of its just norms and values? Well, obviously very concerned about the norms and values when one candidate for presidency is literally talking about a dictatorship. I campaigned in New Hampshire with uh, Jamie Raskin from the January 6th committee, but I also went to a very important event with Liz Cheney, my former colleague, talking about her book and talking about the January 6th committee. And both of them, having studied thousands of pages of depositions and videotape, have reached the conclusion that Donald Trump would not leave the White House if he is elected again. That is a significant threat 
to our democracy. And what I found in New Hampshire is that when voters have a binary choice, they will choose another leader. And in this case, Joe Biden, Nikki Haley. There were obviously voters that are still very much enthralled with Donald Trump. But I think I feel very hopeful going forward that we can get the word out about our freedom agenda And prosperity, democracy, these are themes that are widely, widely accepted in our society, in our communities, and at the ballot box. And I feel very confident and much more hopeful going forward if we put our faith in the American people, if we communicate with them clearly and accurately, that we will overcome the disinformation and that our democracy will thrive. I had a unique opportunity yesterday. I spent an hour in the Oval Office with President Biden. It was beautiful with a fire and a a whole conversation about all of these issues that we're talking about. And he was very sharp and very engaged and wanted to understand our experience in New Hampshire communicating with voters because he had done extremely well there almost 70% of the vote, and was wanting to understand how to communicate going forward. So I'm very optimistic right now, and I love this country. I really do, and I think we need to fight for it. One line that Liz Cheney had that I really am going to live by is there are no bystanders in a democracy, that we all have to participate. You're listening to this podcast Make a plan to get out and get involved and get engaged, run for office, get involved in a campaign, be engaged, call out disinformation when you see it, because this is too important. There are no bystanders in this process. We all have to be citizens. I absolutely love that. And obviously, we want to make sure that politics is an honorable profession. And one of the ways it is, is to uphold rules of law and and the institutions and free and fair elections. And don't let the cynicism get you down. That's right. Exactly. So, I mean, I think you mentioned your time with the president and that the president did very well in a writing campaign, which is not easy to do. Can you talk a little bit, New Hampshire will be back on everyone's radar as a swing state in November. What's your sense of what's resonating there? What are the democratic prospects there? What are you seeing on the ground? Sure. Thank you for that. So let me kind of set the stage for your listeners. My district and the other district, we just have two, are only 30% registered Democrats, 30% registered Republicans, 40% what we call undeclared independent voters that are not declared for one party or the other. So they can, in a primary like that, pick up either ballot And you saw a high percentage of independent voters voting, writing in Joe Biden, and then the rest were voting for Nikki Haley. But it was a strong anti-Trump vote. There were more voters against Donald Trump than for him is, is the bottom line. The issues that resonated are these issues that we're talking about in this freedom agenda. I think people were very interested in The success of the first four years, we talk a lot about, we've got some wonderful infrastructure projects, 
Broadband communication in a rural state, very, very important that we've extended broadband across the state. But we also talked about the why for the second term. And so we talked about housing. We talked about childcare. We talked about those kitchen table issues that are still very challenging to our voters. The cost of gasoline has come way down. I think it was right under $3 last week during the election. But the cost of housing is still very, very high. We have a very low occupancy rate. We have a 0.1% occupancy rate, and a a healthy place to be would be 5%. And so the cost of housing is extremely high. The cost of childcare is very high. During the pandemic, 12% of women left our workforce, but only half came back because so many childcare centers closed. So these are the types of initiatives that we need to take I'm looking at the big picture that for most American families, infrastructure is not just roads and bridges and highways, but it includes clean water, clean air, safe schools, and it includes housing and childcare. And really, if you think of infrastructure as how people participate in our economy, how we get to work, how do we sell our goods, how do we move our goods around, The new version of that is the internet and access to broadband and women in the workplace so that families have the support of good childcare and safe, affordable housing. And then at the end of the day, people are not asking for too much. They want to work hard. They want to have a good job. They want to take care of their family. They want to retire with dignity. It shouldn't be too much to ask for the majority of Americans to get just that. And that's our goal. That's a good goal for not only New Hampshire, but I think the entire country. Absolutely. One of the things you've been a leader on that we haven't talked about yet is the idea of providing more mental health support for kids and for everyone, especially coming out of the pandemic when we're really seeing some of the lasting effects from that time. Can you talk about both that work and then also what the prospects are for any federal support for more mental health? Yeah. So I'm the founder and co-chair of the Bipartisan Mental Health and Addiction Task Force. And I've been involved in this issue my whole career, but particularly here in Congress, New Hampshire had been hit very, very hard by the opioid epidemic. Now we're continuing to struggle with fentanyl and deaths due to overdose. We've had this experience in my own family. My older brother out on the West Coast struggles with opioid addiction and the complications that come with that in your personal life. So I very much believe in access to treatment, medically assisted treatment, making sure Suboxone and these types of medications that help people to deal with addiction are available, accessible in rural communities all across this country and urban centers. I also want to make sure that we address this mental health crisis, particularly coming out of the pandemic. But honestly, this has been around for quite a long time. I'll tell you a quick story. I went to the women's prison in New Hampshire. This was shortly before the pandemic and learned that 100% of the inmates, I like to call them patients, 
were dealing with mental health and substance abuse issues. 75% were survivors of sexual assault and 25% had experienced abuse and neglect in their childhood. And these are challenging social traumas, but we need to take them on because the cumulative impact of generation after generation after generation struggling through trauma and then the resulting mental health, anxiety, depression, addiction is very, very costly to our society. And one of the reasons we have a 2% unemployment rate is that we have thousands of able-bodied adults who are not able to work in New Hampshire because of their mental health and addiction problems. Couldn't agree more. And I look forward to your leadership on that issue. All of our communities need so many more resources. I think as we wrap up, I'd like to just a personal question, which is for our listeners, choosing a career in public service is hard in the best of times. It's extremely difficult when you have mobs of people looking for you as you're trying to get out of a chamber. Sort of what motivates you to keep going in a career in public service and why should others consider it? and they're making their professional choices? Well, this may not be the response you expect, but it's fun. I <laughs> love interesting people, and I meet fantastic people, my constituents, my team. I work with an incredible group of young people who I love, both on the New Dem staff and on my Custer staff. But it's fascinating. It's very interesting probing these issues trying to get to a position that's a pragmatic approach that you can get a bipartisan coalition behind. It's challenging. Sometimes it feels like we're pushing string uphill. But, you know, if you have good allies, you do have to take care of yourself. I will say for myself, I'd never experience a traumatic mental health event. And after January 6th, I had some very severe post-traumatic stress, along with my colleagues that were stuck in the gallery and couldn't escape. And I learned a lot about that. I learned a lot about the treatment, the access to treatment, take care of yourself, make sure you stay rested. For me, this is another funny aspect of my life, but skiing was the answer. I could get out, even though it was COVID, I could get outdoors and get exercise. I stay very focused on my family. I prioritize my family, and I think that's very, very important. And I prioritize my friends. And when I'm home, I'm headed home today for the weekend. We'll have some work on the agenda, but I always say to my team, I'm going to need some downtime. I'm going to need time with family and friends so that I'll come back fresh and energized for next week's challenges. Good advice for all of us. And I just want to take a moment to appreciate your leadership in the Capitol, but also your collaboration with New Deal over the years. You've been a great partner to New Deal, and we look forward to really, as you say, driving that freedom agenda, not only at the federal level, but at the state and local level as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I very much appreciate this. Thank you to all our New Deal leaders for your engagement in the community, for running for office. And I look forward to recruiting you to run for Congress <laughs> and serving with you here in the Capitol. Thank you, Congresswoman. Thanks so much. Take care. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. 
Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.